Hello and welcome back. I'm Maria Archibald, and this is Sustain, a podcast about environmental, social, and economic justice. Today, I chat with Dr. Sarah Graneski, professor of sociology at the University of Utah and director of the Center for Natural and Technological Hazards in the College of Social and Behavioral Science. Dr. Graneski researches socio-environmental health disparities particularly those related to air pollution and respiratory illness. I read a paper by a a person named Dr. Laster Pirtle, and she wrote this article in 2020 on the early days of COVID focused on Black communities. And she talks about how racial capitalism is also a fundamental cause of disease. And she makes the argument because we know that, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC have higher rates of underlying health conditions than do white folks. Uh, BIPOC endure multiple exposures to more harmful physical and social environments, and they tend to have more restricted access to flexible resources that would buffer negative health outcomes. Stay tuned to learn more from Dr. Graneski about the socio-environmental indicators of health. My name is Sarah Graneski. I'm a professor here at the University of Utah in sociology, and I have a shared appointment in the Environmental and Sustainability Studies program. I actually haven't been here at the U for too long yet. I came here in January of 2018. Uh, Before joining the faculty at the U, I was a professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. So here at the U, I'm the director of undergrad studies in sociology. I also co-direct the Center for Natural and Technological Hazards and a summer research program for undergraduate students in air pollution and health. I'm also the proud parent of three young children. And so uh, that keeps me busy as well. Dr. Graneski discovered her passion for environmental justice and socio-environmental health research by chance, when a future mentor showed her that what she had previously thought of as disparate interests were actually deeply interconnected. You know, I gave a talk, I guess it was last week, at Roland Hall to some high school students who are learning about climate justice. And when I started to talk to them about environmental justice, I started thinking back to the fact that when I was in high school, when I was a junior like they were, I didn't even know what environmental justice was yet. And here I am, you know, spending my time focused on this theme that I, you know, wasn't even aware of at the point in which I was thinking about my future career. So for me, I finished college and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I had a double major in sociology and biology. I was interested in the environment. And so I kind of did a scattershot approach to applying to a couple different graduate programs in different fields, actually. And then I went on a visit to Arizona State University where I had applied to their sociology graduate program. And I ended up meeting with my eventual mentor, Dr. Bob Bolin, who was an environmental sociologist. And as I was leaving, he handed me a journal article that his team had recently published on environmental justice in Phoenix. So I flew back to Minnesota where I was from and I read this article on the plane and I was blown away. I didn't know that these things were happening. Uh, I didn't know that I could be involved in work like this that brings together my interest in health and the environment and social justice. And so that sort of started me on this path of you know, doing research at the, the nexus of you know, environmental conditions health and social justice. But I think when my advisor saw my application for grad school, like he saw how this was a perfect fit for me, even though I didn't even know um, exactly what it was. So that was just, it was kind of interesting how I was interested in all these things. I just didn't know one could bring them together uh, and study them. Can you tell me a little bit more about how and why race, income, immigration and refugee status and other identities act as indicators of health outcomes? 
just it's a hard question to answer right about why uh, we have health disparities and so I thought it's probably worth talking about so in sociology some sociologists a Lincoln Phelan have this theory called the theory of fundamental causes they published it for the first time in 1995 and then it's been you know used ever since and they were interested in why and how socioeconomic disparities in health persist over time even as we start to address some of the socioeconomic uh, factors related to health, they seem to pop up in another place. So for example, like access to clean water. So historically in the United States, you know, for a longer time, poor people did not have access to clean pipe water when more affluent people did, right, which was associated with greater rates of disease. Now today, uh, the majority of people in the United States have access to clean piped water, but we still have socioeconomic disparities in health in other areas. And so they're interested in this persistent association between socioeconomic status and health. And they argue that it's not necessarily representing other things, it's the socioeconomic status itself that's a fundamental cause. And they argue that because socioeconomic status embodies an array of resources, right? Money, knowledge, prestige, power, social networks that protect your health, no matter which mechanisms of you know, causing ill health are relevant at any given time. So they sort of look historically at how in given all these changing conditions, socioeconomic status persists as a fundamental cause of disease. And then I've been reading re recently um, studies trying to connect this idea of fundamental cause with racial ethnic disparities in health. And I read a paper um, that I actually have my students read in my environmental health disparities class by a, a person named Dr. Laster Pertle. And she wrote this article in 2020 in the early days of COVID focused on black communities. And she talks about how racial capitalism is also a fundamental cause of disease. So racial capitalism is this idea that racialized exploitation, so you can think about slavery, colonialism, genocide, sort of the general devaluation of black lives as well, and capital accumulation, right? This goal in a capitalist system to continually pursue profit. So racial capitalism links this idea of racialized exploitation and capital accumulation as mutually constitutive, right? So they're interdependent on each other. So she makes the argument in the paper that, you know, racial capitalism is also a fundamental cause of health disparities. And she makes the argument because we know that, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC have higher rates of underlying health conditions than do white folks. Uh, BIPOC endure multiple exposures to more harmful physical and social environments, and they tend to have more restricted access to flexible resources that would buffer negative health outcomes. So even as the landscape changes, uh, they end up having less access to these flexible resources. And so she ties this back to racial capitalism and then this fundamental cause argument. So those are some ideas for why we see relationships between um, socioeconomics, race, and health disparities. I can tell you a story about a project uh, that I worked on back when I was at University of Texas, El Paso. We had done a survey of parents of elementary school children in El Paso, and we were looking at sort of social and environmental inequalities and respiratory health. And when we, my team, we were developing this, the survey, um, we thought, you know, let's add some questions to the survey that ask about GPA. We had recently read some of the studies that were coming out of California at the time linking air pollution to lower standardized test scores at public schools in Los Angeles and then 
in California as a whole. So kind of on a whim, we added, we looked at a, a report card. One of my, one of the research assistants on the team was a parent. And so she brought her child's report card in and we sort of created a survey item that mapped to that report card. And then we did the survey. We were working on papers on respiratory health. And I had a grad student, uh, Stephanie Clark Reyna, and she was interested in those GPA variables. And so I have this like vivid memory of sitting in her office talking about what she was going to do for her master's thesis and, you know, telling her, yeah, you know, we can try this. We can look at the air pollution and these, you know, GPA, uh, these parent reported grade measures. But I remember saying, I'm not sure what we're going to find. You know, we've never done this type of work before. We have all these findings for respiratory health. I just don't know if it's going to work out for your thesis, but yeah, let's give it a try. And it turned out that the relationship statistically between the air pollution exposures, both at home and at school, um, were strongly linked in a you know, statistical sense with the parent-reported GPA. We were controlling for variables known to affect GPA, um, like mother's level of education, if the child uh, spoke English at home, their socioeconomic status, and those findings were so strong. Sometimes when you do statistics, you make little changes to your model and the findings change. In this case, no matter what we did to the model, those findings were there and they were strong. Uh, the pollution was the second, uh, I think, largest predictor of GPA after mother's education. And so it was kind of just a funny story of a student being interested in a topic and then we sort of pursued it. Um, and then it ended up being like a headline from the, the entire project. And it's interesting because for me, it sort of started me on a new research trajectory. I had been studying asthma and air pollution since my doctoral, my master's degree, really. And then I became interested in how air pollution is affecting our brains, how it's affecting our cognitive functioning, how it affects school performance and sort of social inequalities related to that. So since then, we've done a national study on exposures to air pollution and student test scores on math, science, and reading exams. Here in Salt Lake City, um, we've done some local work on this topic. It's been led by one of my graduate students, Casey Mullen, looking at air pollution at school, uh, inequalities in air pollution at school, as well as links with standardized test scores. There's a, a researcher up at the University of Montana uh, named Lillian Calderon, and she does research in Mexico City, and she does autopsies actually on people who die from traffic accidents or you know they're perfectly healthy but they die of, a, of an accident. And they do autopsies on people and they examine their brain and they've published a series of studies looking at how air pollution is affecting our brain structures. And so she can see in some of these autopsies, for example, like early signs of autism uh, in children's brains who you know, lived in a really polluted part of Mexico City. And so on the medical side, she's doing work about how air pollution is affecting our brain structure, um, which is interesting. Could you speak a little bit to how this research is being used and what is being done to advocate for change on a social or political level? These types of, you know, re this type of research that links air pollution exposure to, you know, cognitive development and school performance. I think it's like another piece of evidence, right? We've known for a long time that air pollution is not good for our respiratory health. And then, you know, we added cardiovascular health. And now I think in the last 10 years, we've sort of emphasized to a bit, a bit more how it affects our, our neurological health as well. And so I see these are like building blocks. These are pieces that have to come together to create some momentum um, towards towards policy change, specifically, you know, with environmental regulations. We need 
I don't know if you saw it recently, but the World Health Organization came out with much lower recommended uh, particulate matter 2.5 standards. And so the US and other countries, you know, need to follow that lead and lower our standards um, lower than they are right now. And so I think this evidence of health harm um, hopefully sort of contributes to those conversations about how important it is that we, you know, pollute less. There's also some interesting opportunities now, potentially due to COVID, with you know installing air filtration systems in school classrooms to help with COVID, but also they can help with air pollution. I read recently that the Los Angeles Independent School District installed filters in all classrooms in the district, which will help reduce the spread of COVID, but also will filter some of the air pollution inside our classrooms. So there might be sort of creative ways of trying to work towards that as well. What does a sustainable future look like to you? Yes. Um, in terms of a sustainable future, when I think about that, uh, for me, it makes me think of the environmental justice principles. So back in October of 1991, uh, there was a summit, the first National People of Color Environmental Justice Leadership Summit uh, in Washington, D.C. And this is a huge important event in the history of environmental justice in the United States. And at this event, attendees drafted 17 principles of environmental justice. So it's too much for me to read you all 17 at the moment. But if you Google environmental justice principles, uh, this list comes up right away. So these principles, which if I think about a sustainable future, I think that if we could adopt these principles, um, we could have a future that seems much more sustainable. So the principles are things like the first one, environmental justice affirms the sacredness of Mother Earth. Number two, environmental justice demands that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all people. Number six, environmental justice demands the cessation of the production of toxins, hazardous waste, and radioactive material. Number eight, environmental justice affirms the rights of all workers to a safe and healthy environment. And then lastly, number 17, environmental justice requires that we as individuals make personal and consumer choices to consume as little of Mother Earth's resources and to produce as little waste as possible. So you kind of get the idea of the spirit of these principles um, of environmental justice, which involve, you know, walking gently, and then being sure that we're being equitable um, and inclusive in all regards. You've talked a lot about environmental justice so far in this interview, and so I'm wondering what you would call upon the sustainability movement to do in order to reach your vision for a sustainable future. Thinking about those principles of environmental justice, I think that the sustainability movement does really need to seriously engage with the idea of environmental justice. Sometimes when I think about sustainability, I think about corporations and I think about these, you know, greenwashing and go green and uh, buy these products. And I think while that might be important in some spheres and in some regards, I think we need to go back to this idea of environmental justice and those principles. And I think if we revisit those principles from 1991, right, I think they are a good roadmap sort of guiding us into the future. And I think as someone who studies environmental justice issues, I think we have to be really attuned to not leaving out segments of the population that have been historically marginalized. Uh, sometimes it is the poorest and most marginalized people who are living the gentliest on the earth, you know, in terms of their consumption habits. And I think we don't want to neglect that and we want to, you know, raise that up. And I also think if you go back to the idea of socioeconomic inequalities and racial capitalism, as fundamental causes of ill health, then clearly those things need to be addressed as well um, as we think about moving forward. I don't know if you saw that new paper that came out in Science last week about intergenerational equity and climate change. 
um, the paper, I mean, the paper does what I think we already know, but it actually quantifies it in very specific terms. So the paper says that if the planet continues to warm on its current trajectory, the average six-year-old, my son is six right now, right? will live through roughly three times as many climate disasters as their grandparents. They'll see twice as many wildfires, 1.7 times as many tropical cyclones, 3.4 times more floods, and 2.5 times more crop failures, and 2.3 times more, more droughts as someone born in 1960. And I think that paper for me is really powerful because I think about environmental justice and I think about intergenerational equity. And for me, that seems like a call to action. Um, there's so many of those things that you hear these days that are. Um, but I think the way in which that paper quantifies what our children's future looks like um, is really important that we think about those things as we talk about sustainability, that we think about sustainability for whom and sustainability for what, and that we don't forget about future generations, right? And the choices we have to make now um, to try to make things not so dire for them in the future. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you thought. You're listening to Sustain, a podcast by the University of Utah Sustainability Office. For monthly episodes, subscribe to Sustain on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To learn more about our work, visit sustainability.utah.edu or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sustainable U of U. Interviews and editing of this podcast are done by me. Maria Archibald, a graduate student in the University of Utah's Environmental Humanities Program and a graduate assistant in the Sustainability Office. The music in this podcast was written and performed by Yusuf Farah. Special thanks to my brother, Daniel Archibald, for his sound editing support.